Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 festival podcast, David Nywert, Alt America, proudly presented by the New Zealand Listener and supported by the Christchurch City Council Sister City Programme. Like the proverbial overnight sensation that actually took years, the roots of Donald Trump's alt-right America stretch back to the 1990s to patriot militias, white supremacists and Tea Party activists. Emboldened by right-wing media, they found a common object of loathing in the first black president. The unlikely messiah was a controversial property developer and reality TV star, but is Trump really an ideologue? Investigative journalist David Nywert has tracked US extremists for more than two decades. He talks about the result, alt-America, the rise of the radical right in the time of Trump, with New Zealand listener journalist Paul Thomas. Hi everybody, thanks for coming and um, thanks to uh, the listener for supporting this event uh, and to the Christchurch City Council Sister Cities program. Our guest tonight is the distinguished American investigative journalist David Nywood, who has devoted far too much of his life to uh, investigating and monitoring the American radical right. Uh, I'm almost tempted to add and live to tell the tale. (laughs) Uh, And it's some tale. Uh, This is David's book, which he will be signing copies of afterwards. Uh, And if you notice me looking at my watch during the conversation, that's because the last 15 minutes will be your opportunity to ask questions. So um, I'm going to start by reading, David, what struck me as as one of the most arresting uh, of the many arresting sentences in your book. And it's, people who have studied the extremist right as a historical and socio-political phenomenon in depth are acutely aware of a simple truth. America has been very, very lucky so far when it comes to fascistic political movements. Could you expand on that and explain where the luck has come into it? Sure. Oh, and first, let me say kia ora. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me to your lovely country. Um, Yeah. uh, Well, the reality is that fascistic traits have been woven into... Uh, the American psyche for years, and in fact, um, much of what we know of European fascism was actually got its inspiration from things that were very American. Uh, Hitler, in particular, uh, got his inspiration for Lebensraum, from uh, the genocide of the Native Americans. Uh, He got the idea for the brown shirts, from the Ku Klux Klan. He got the idea for the Nuremberg laws from uh, the Jim Crow laws that were already in place in the United States. So um, many of the things that we think of as fascism uh, were very much woven into the fabric of the country. And indeed, there have always been 
uh, quasi or proto-fascistic movements in the United States, uh, certainly dating back to after the Civil War, um, and uh, you know, embodied by the Klan, uh, which really is fundamentally proto-fascistic. Uh, and they've been there for a long time. You know, they definitely uh, went into, became uh, uh, fringe movements after World War II. And I think the entire world reeled in horror when we saw the results of fascism, uh, and particularly the Holocaust uh, after World War II. And for that reason, uh, we're driven to the fringes, but uh, we now have gone several generations since then, and succeeding generations are letting those memories fade. Uh, so today's young people frequently know very little about the Holocaust, know very little about fascism, and as a result have become somewhat more susceptible to it. Um, but more than that, um, you know, the, the one thing, when you look at the history of why fascism never really took root during those years, particularly the 20s and 30s, uh, when there were actually fairly powerful um, fascistic movements, the main reason was, was that they didn't really have that singular charismatic figure around whom all of these fascistic elements could uh, you know, join under a singular banner. And in fact, part of the nature of right-wing extremists generally, and fascists in particular, is that they are singularly unpleasant people. Uh, they are um, paranoid, uh, contentious, constantly angry, uh, constantly suspicious, uh, and also very prone to grift and, and uh, corruption, you know, uh, financial mishandling. So uh, the, the Klan, for instance, in the 20s fell apart because of these internal warfare, the internal warfare that happened, and also the fact that the leaders of the Klan were actually, you know, con artists who were ripping everybody off. So um, over the years, all of those elements really kept fascism from really gaining power or gaining any serious traction. And, uh, but the main thing was that they didn't have that singular figure uh, around whom they could uh, rally. And that was true even prior, just in the years prior to uh, Donald Trump's ascension. Uh, you know, the alt-right has been organizing really since about 2010 and was actually about to fall apart uh, by early 2015. We saw a lot of uh, fissures within that movement. And by, you know, late summer of that year, or by, or, or by spring of that year, we were, you know, seeing real signs that it was going to split up. And then Trump came along and became this singular figure that allowed them to unify and uh, really become a single movement mm. uh, with, with real traction. Mm. So, I mean, observing Trump, you, you get the impression that he's such a kind of narcissistic, uh, petulant, stupid person. But the question that arises is to what extent has he actually figured out what's going on and to what extent is he consciously playing to this, to this group? 
It's an interesting mix. He's not a, what I would call a white nationalist ideologue in the classic sense. You know, he's not actually that smart. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't, he's not a, certainly not a, a fascist uh, in the classic sense because real fascists are highly ideological and, and buy into, you know, all the blood and soil yeah. ideology and things like that. And that's not Trump. Trump is what we would call a, a classic uh, right-wing populist demagogue. Um, but he is also acutely aware of the role of race in the world. Um, New York Times did a really good, or actually did an interesting piece back in uh, last year at about the time that Trump was attacking the football, National Football League players and calling them SOBs for protesting during the national anthem. And as the uh, Times often does, they buried their actual lead about three quarters of the way <laughs> through the story, which was that uh, it, they had this paragraph where they said, you know, everyone, all the staff in the Oval Office and everybody around the president uh, openly acknowledges that uh, President Trump sees himself as a uh, uh, waging a war, cultural war, on behalf of his white working class base. And that this war was forced on him and everyone and on whites by uh, minorities in Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Democrats, but also all the minorities that are uh, placed. So he sees himself very much as a white cultural warrior. Mm -hmm. And so this is why when they after Charlottesville, for instance, after the uh, deadly riots in Charlottesville, um, first he put out a really uh, a stupid statement saying, uh, well, there's uh, violence on both sides. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, after all this outrage erupted over his, uh, you know, this false equivalency that he was trotting out, uh, he did put out a statement saying, well, we denounce all white supremacists and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. But then two days later, during a press conference, uh, he came back and said, well, you know, some of those people were very fine people. Mm. And, uh, and it's really important to understand that, you know, uh, of course, we do focus on Trump a lot, but really the effect that this has on these white nationalists who follow him is really profound. And it's part of, it was part of a trend that we saw all through the campaign he did the same thing when he didn't denounce David Duke and did the same thing when he tweeted out a, an image of himself as Pepe and retweeted a white genocide mm -hmm. uh, uh, tweet. Uh, he would do this, he would make these gestures that were signals to the white nationalists that he was on their side. Then he would step back a little and uh, we called it a three-step tango. And then a few days later would, would uh, sort of make another gesture, yeah. make, making it clear that these anodyne disavowals were very much uh, insincere. Yeah. And his, these white nationalists always saw that, even, even if it, you didn't get the third step, they always saw him as, well, he's really secretly telling us he supports us. Yeah. And that was very consistent throughout yeah. both the campaign and has been consistent since his election. Yeah. Um, if, if I read the book correctly, it seemed to me there were three things that, that kind of three big steps in the process. Uh, the first was 
2000, when the census showed that uh, whites would become a minority in the 2040s, mm -hmm. second 9-11 and the third Obama's election. Would, is that how, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, well, this, this, it touches on the sort of anxiety that he was definitely exploiting in terms of, you know, the anxiety of white people uh, in America regarding their role as the predominant racial uh, ethnic group. Mm -hmm. And um, ultimately this, what this really comes down to in many ways is, um, you know, obviously not every white person in America has those attitudes, but there has always been within the country, a, a, a segment of the country that we, we call uh, these right-wing authoritarian personalities. Um, the authoritarian personality has very specific traits, and among them is, you know, a, a, you know, a tendency to otherizing, to to be fearful of the other mm -hmm. that is non-white, yeah. and um, but also um, an insistence on their dominance, continuing mm -hmm. dominance of the cultural and political spheres as well. Yeah, the, um, I mean, the 9-11 one is, is quite interesting because, uh, I mean, one of the, the, the real eye-opening thing, things in your book is the amount of domestic terrorism that has occurred mm -hmm. and, you know, the uh, eliminationism, I think you call it, mm -hmm. the, uh, perhaps uh, you could explain that Concept. That idea, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, eliminationism actually is a term I got from uh, Daniel Jonah Goldhagen's book, um, Hitler's Willing Executioners, which is about how the, uh, the Nazis used eliminationist rhetoric uh, as, and eliminationist ideas to uh, gin up uh, hatred of Jews into, it was actually a form of creating permission uh, for the actual, for the, what later became the Holocaust mm. during the buildup. I found that a, a really fascinating uh, point because I was actually, at the time I read that book, was working on a book about the Japanese-American internment in, during World War II. And I was very familiar with the long-running campaign that had gone on for about 40 years before that uh, of, of uh, basically trying to drive or keep Japanese from entering the United States. And, uh, the, and it, but I was also, since I grew up in the West, I was also very familiar with Western history and the kind of rhetoric that came around the genocide of Native Americans. Uh, elimination, eliminationist rhetoric basically is rhetoric that demonizes and dehumanizes uh, other people by um, whole groups of other people by making them into objects fit only for elimination. So it compares it, it it analogizes them to vermin, to diseases, uh, to you know waste of all kinds things that you want to eliminate from your society. Um, and uh, you know the classic example that I use, of course, was. Uh, Colonel Shivington, uh, the, uh, the Colorado 
a leader who led the massacre of Native Americans at uh, Sand Creek in 1870 uh, before he led his men to that massacre. And they mostly killed women and children in that massacre. And he, ex he told his men before that to not fear them uh, doing so because as he put it, nits make lice, you know? And, yeah. and that's sort of the, that's really sort of the, the encapsulates mm. the eliminationist attitude. Yeah. So we certainly, in, in, you know, there's been eliminationist attitudes against, uh, about Japanese, about uh, black people, about um, gays and lesbians, and uh, more recently, uh, Latinos, and uh, Muslims mm -hmm. in the United States. And it's really very much a common thread that runs through this. Mm -hmm. And I might add it's uh, in recent 20, the last 20, 10, 15 years, I would say it also includes you know, liberals. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of eliminationist rhetoric out there, uh, particularly on Rush Limbaugh and Michael Savage, Sean Hannity, Fox News, that is fundamentally eliminationist and it really, is aimed as much as liberals as these ethnic groups. The, um, the puzzling thing, I guess, is that, you know, the, the Boston bombing, Boston Marathon bombing, I think two people were killed, or maybe there's more than that. Yeah, I think three, uh, yeah. but yeah, and a number, a lot of people injured. Yeah. yeah 167 yeah. people were injured. But yeah, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> as these things go, it was actually mercifully um, yeah, 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 non-bloody. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's just difficult to get, to, to comprehend the apparent unwillingness of, of Americans to acknowledge that these people represent a threat, and in fact, more than a threat, they're actually doing stuff. Yeah. What, what's, why cannot people see? I mean, you know, that I understand that 9-11 that cast a long shadow, mm -hmm. but because <coughs> that happened, surely doesn't put in the shade what's happening over here. No, well, of course, keep in mind uh, the Charnoff brothers who, um, committed the Boston Marathon brothers, or bombing were Uzbekistani, and they were Muslims. Yeah. And so that was, that bombing was uh, put off to, or it was described to as um, uh, Islamist terrorism. But the reality was, um, in addition to having an Islamist ideology, those guys were also down that whole Alex Jones, Infowars, uh, right-wing uh, rabbit hole uh, that is part of this alternative universe mm -hmm. that the, the radical right has created for itself, and which I call Alt-America. Uh, it's this epistemological bubble that's comprised of conspiracy theories, uh, alternative facts, mm -hmm. <laughs> as they've come to be popularly known, and frankly, just outright fabrications. Yeah. Uh, some of them just wildly unbelievable, except that people who've gone down those rabbit holes, who've become what they call red-pilled after the, um, the, it's reference to the Matrix uh, yeah. films where you could take the blue pill or the red pill, and one would put you back to sleep and the other one would wake you up and let you see the reality, right? And they believe that they are seeing the reality, which is that, you know, there's a cabal of 
nefarious Jews secretly conspiring to rule the world. That's what happens when you get red-pilled. So, uh, and that's certainly where the Charnoff brothers went. Uh, but really, probably a better example of this would be uh, the rampage of Dylan Roof, mm -hmm. uh, which I actually opened the book with because uh, Dylan Roof went on this rampage the day after Donald Trump announced his candidacy. Uh, and he murdered nine people in a, at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina. And... Uh, did so because he believed black people were murdering white people at, a, at an outrageous rate and that uh, it was time to begin the race war, so. Yeah, uh, you, you say at, at one point that alt America has always functioned as a refuge for people who reject factual reality. Mm -hmm. So if I could ask you the question that Obama was supposedly the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah. He was going to introduce the evil of the virus. Muslim Antichrist. He was going to hand America over to the New World Order or, mm -hmm. you know, the Caliphate or whatever. Now, given that Obama was president for eight years and turned out to be none of the things, yeah. has, how many people on the alt-right would have had second thoughts on the basis. Not one of them. No, not it's one. not part of their mindset. Not one of them. Uh, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's the same as when uh, it's actually very similar to like religious cults mm. that uh, predict the end of the world. And then when the end of the world doesn't happen, they say, well, it's because we had, we prayed <laughs> that it didn't end. Yeah. And so we actually saved the world, right? Yeah. That's how they think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how that was very, and that's very much part of the same mindset that you see at work in Alt America. Um, and, you know, I trace the origins of this alternative universe to the 1990s uh, with the Patriot Militia Movement uh, that I really began covering in the Northwest back then. And uh, because most of the conspiracy theories and uh, the, sort of the, this epistemological bubble dated back to then. In fact, I published a book in 1999. There was a study of the militia movement that was, and I wrote a chapter about their alternative universe. Mm -hmm. And I just kept seeing this alternative universe growing and growing and growing over the years. You know, I went through a phase during the Bush years where uh, it wasn't gaining a lot of traction in uh, among mainstream conservatives because their primary theory was the 9-11 truther uh, uh, conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And of course, the core of that theory was that George W. Bush was part of the New World Order. So of course, mainstream Republicans did not join in. But as soon as Barack Obama mm -hmm. was elected president, uh, the gap disappeared, yeah. and particularly through the venue of the Tea Party. Uh, within probably weeks, months of the Tea Party forming in early 2009, uh, we saw very clear signs that they were adopting uh, these ideas and agenda point, uh, talking points and the, ultimately the agenda of the old Patriot Militia movement. Uh, certainly the conspiracism came bubbling to the top. Um, and, you know, in symbols too, you know, are you familiar with the Gadsden flag? Mm -hmm. 
This is the yellow flag that says, don't tread on me, has the rattlesnake on it. That, of course, is a symbol of the Tea Party, uh, is what we, when we see the Tea Party, when we see one of those flags in the States now, we think of the Tea Party. But I saw it back in the 1990s being used originally by the Patriot Militia Movement. And up until 2009, whenever I saw that flag, I thought, oh, there's a militiaman, you know? Uh, I mean, when people simply refuse to, to kind of engage on a, on a common ground of, of fact, yeah. how on earth do you argue with them? How do you, you reason? You can't them? have a public discourse. Yeah. It's, it's actually really toxic to our discourse. Yeah, yeah no, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's Which suggests the problem us. is, is not open to persuasion, that there's no... The, no, there is no persuading. The only way you can actually pull them out of these rabbit holes is, is if it's, it has to be somebody that um, they have, you know, sort of uh, emotional ties to, mm. uh, typically familial or, or they're an old friend. And you have to do it very slowly and, and with patience and love and... Boy, these guys, uh, when they go down the rat rabbit hole, they're, they're so uh, nasty and unpleasant that it's really difficult to pull them out. Uh, this fall, I'm going to be covering the trial of a young man in, up in my neck of the woods, north of Seattle, uh, where, uh, who stabbed his father to death because he had gotten so far down the, the, pizza, the Pizzagate conspiracy that he accused his father of being part of this pedophilia ring, that global pedophilia ring that supposedly exists and is the is sort of the core of the so-called Pizzagate conspiracy theory. Uh, and he accused his dad of being a, you know, a part of this pedophilia ring. <laughs> and he was living with his parents, a 33-year-old man. And dad said, you're out of here. And he picked up a knife and stabbed him to death. Mm. So, um, the other thing that comes through strongly in in, uh, in the book is that the internet and the social media has been a big factor in this process. And I, I'm wondering, is is that 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 the hate speech and the extraordinary violence of the rhetoric is there is so much out there on the internet and mm -hmm. in social media. I mean, there is no control over that anymore, is there? There's no restriction as there was in the days of, you know, the mainstream press and, and the print media. Yeah. There was a, a volume of material that could be effectively monitored and contained. That's gone, hasn't it? For the most part, um, you know, it's always, it always was amazing to me that Alex Jones could get away mm. with lying so much about so many people uh, and, and, and not face. Because usually, typically, there's always been a, tip, a, a legal restraint on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a news editor at newspapers for many years, and part of my job was ensuring and enforcing factual standards and basic journalistic standards. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that uh, we were going to get sued. Yeah. If we didn't, we, mm. we faced legal repercussions if we lied about anybody or um, accidentally smeared them. So, um, and, and Alex Jones was just getting away with it willy-nilly. I think that's finally ending now. 
uh, you know, one of his favorite conspiracy theories was, uh, you know, this claim that uh, the Sandy Hook massacre was actually a false flag operation, mm -hmm. was faked, and that the uh, those the children never actually really existed. They were actors. Right? Yeah, they were uh, crisis actors, yeah. right? And and so what happened, of course, is that the horde of uh, followers, we call them flying monkeys, this from Alex Jones, descended upon these parents and harassed them in their homes in just really horrible fashion. And they finally had enough and are suing the bejesus out of them mm -hmm. uh, for millions of dollars, I think, there's a reasonable chance that they could put him out of business because they have a very solid case. Mm -hmm. And that case is going, is in the courts right now. Mm. So um, keeping my fingers crossed because that is the, that is what should have happened a long time yeah. ago to Alex Jones. Yeah. And it is the, it's the thing that, you know, should be, should have been happening in mm -hmm. terms of uh, maintaining standards of truthfulness mm. in, in what he does. It's, I mean, one of the, I suppose, the puzzling things about it is these people obviously just make things up. Yeah. And, and which kind of suggests that they're con men almost. Yeah. In the sense that... You can always buy those uh, health supplements from yeah. Alex, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, how, how much of that is going on? I mean, when uh, they're making up these absurd narratives to simply keep the thing going. Well, it's it's pretty interesting. I would say most of these people actually um, believe a lot of their own BS. Mm. Uh, they they even uh, if they've made it up, even yeah, if they know they've the, invented the, it, and even at a certain level, they know that they're lying. Mm -hmm. But um, but there's this really profound sort of uh, denial that's going on within their personalities that they block that out. And you know, the, there's a level at which they really believe it, mm. and it certainly helps give them a, you know, makes them appear like they're being authentic. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's a mix. Mm. So mm. I, I don't know. I, I will say, I mean, the main thing that that all of this is about the pollution of the information stream, and. Trump's deliberate use of it is calling uh, CNN and uh, mainstream media fake news, which is just create adds to this sort of hall of mirrors effect mm. that we get uh, from this rhetoric. Um, has a, actually a very specific purpose, and that's to encourage authoritarianism, because when you have chaos, uh, chaos brings fear, as in, as we saw after 9/11. Um, you know, particularly chaos in the information stream. When you can't tell what's true and what's not anymore, um, the, the, you know, the mainstream, the main American public somewhat naturally responds. It's very much a common psychological response to revert to authoritarianism mm -hmm. because the authoritarian leader promises to bring order to this chaos, and that's what it's about. Mm. Um, uh, authoritarian personalities are very, very interesting. Uh, and, you know, it's, um, I would say it's the primary dynamic at work here. Um, 
Authoritarian personalities are built around three uh, behavioral and attitudinal clusters. Uh, the first is um, authoritarian submission, the belief that in order to have a safe and civil and secure society, everyone needs to submit to the rule of the great authoritarian leader because he will bring order. Um, the second is authoritarian submission, which is the, uh, I'm sorry, authoritarian aggression, excuse me, uh, which is aggression directed towards anyone who fails to uh, appropriately submit. And then the third is this conventionalism, this idea that, that they are the um, uh, true mainstream, that they represent the real mainstream. Yeah. We're the real America. And those three clusters interact in, in very interesting ways so that they produce really a very long list of, of interesting traits, uh, compartmentalized thinking, mm -hmm. um, it's a very much uh, an e willingness to um, submit or to uh, proneness to conspiracism and also a willingness to put up with uh, bigoted and prejudiced behavior. Which I guess, um, to, to come back to the quote that I began with, the next sentence is, and now with the arrival of, of the Donald Trump presidency, that luck appears to have finally run out. Yeah. Where does this end? I mean, given the, the, the significance of Trump to this whole thing, mm -hmm. you know, you had Roger Stone, um, longtime Trump henchman, saying, any attempt to impeach Trump will lead to civil war. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and Trump the other day. Uh, Chaos will follow. Yeah, yeah. Rudy Giuliani basically yeah. telling people to get out on the streets. Right. If, I mean, given the legal jeopardy that, that Trump would appear to be in, where what are we looking at here? I mean, where is this going to end? I'm really not sure. I, anybody have a job for me down here? <laughs> <laughs> I may need to move here because I'm going to be one of the enemy of the people. So. He supports the All Blacks, if yeah. that's the help. <laughs> I do. I like the All Blacks. Um, uh, anyway, uh, no, the, 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 uh, I'm not, of course, I don't have the answer. I will say what I do tell my audiences in America is that, you know, this is a, a profound challenge. These, this movement particularly the alt-right and the radical right, are fundamentally anti-democratic. Uh, and this is a real challenge to our democratic institutions and to democracy in general. And uh, we need to wake up and recognize that. Um, you know, do you have compulsory voting here in New Zealand? Mm -hmm. I know they have it in Australia, yeah. uh, which is good. Uh, but uh, in the United States, we don't, and it's... Uh, it's part of the problem, it's part of how Trump got elected was a lot of people didn't get out to vote. I do believe that a lot of people are awake now and recognize that, you know, I, I mean, a lot of people felt that feel that politics don't actually affect their personal lives. Mm -hmm. And Trump's presidency has uh, laid waste to that perception. People understand now that it does affect their personal lives in really deep and profound ways. So uh, I'm very hopeful we'll see this fall uh, here in just a couple of months, uh, whether or not they are awake. But mm -hmm. I believe 
uh, I truly believe in my heart that we're going to see a, a big shift in the uh, next two elections that will hopefully remove these people from power. But you're right, my concern ultimately is that in 2020, you know, I mean, Trump wasn't even willing to uh, acknowledge the results of the 2016 mm -hmm. election. Yeah. And I don't think that if he loses the 2020 election that he will acknowledge that it's legitimate. And this army of authoritarian followers is very worrisome because frankly, they're very heavily armed yeah. and uh, also very prone to violence. Uh, I've been covering these uh, alt-right uh, free speech events on the West Coast uh, for the last two years. Uh, a man was shot no more than 10 feet away from me uh, on the inauguration night at the University of Washington. I've seen people pummeled within inches of their lives at these events by alt-right thugs, um, and proud boys, they call themselves. And um, they're going to be bringing guns pretty soon a lot to the, they're saying that, at least they're saying that they are going to be bringing weapons to these events in the future. Um, what, that bodes ill for all of us. Um, I don't think, you know, I think in the end, the, uh, uh, the system that America is more resilient than mm -hmm. that and that we will win out, but it's uh, going to be, it could wind up being very violent and very ugly and, um, yeah, it's, so it's very worrisome. Because, I mean, given the significance of Trump to, to, to this movement, that, that he represents finally that they're able to, starting to get somewhere, wouldn't any attempt to remove Trump from office, say by impeachment, wouldn't that be a kind of a wish fulfillment fantasy for the worst elements in mm -hmm. that our savior is being um, taken away by all the enemies. By the deep state. The, yeah, the deep state, the liberals <laughs> yeah. and so forth. Yeah, I mean, no. They're, they're already chaining themselves up for it. I was just watching a video of a, this evangelical preacher uh, at one of these mega churches down south saying exactly that. Mm that these, these satanic forces that work in the world, they, they call them, and actually they say it's witchcraft, that these people are testing spells and so on and so forth, are, uh, are at work to try to remove Trump from office, that, that uh, Robert Mueller's investigation is just the tip of the spear of this attempt to drive Trump from office and uh, to prepare for it. And they're all praying. You see, see all these people going, you know, in the crowd joining and praying uh, to stop the witchcraft and to stop Satan from, uh, and the deep state is uh, mm -hmm. from succeeding. Um, and yeah, they clearly see their fellow Americans as uh, satanic, at least the liberals. Mm -hmm. so. It, which reminds me of um, Bruce Bartlett's comment, uh, uh, Republican yeah. renegade, where when someone pointed out that 40% like you know, of Republicans thought Obama was the Antichrist and all this. Mm -hmm. the only, well, now 70, 80% of them yeah. think he was Muslim. Yeah. Seriously. And the only sensible interpretation is that they're either imbeciles or insane. 
I mean, is, is that what we're looking at here? I don't think they're imbeciles. I think they're authoritarian. Mm. I think the, when you're authoritarian, the, the part of the authoritarian personality is the willingness to buy into these narratives because mm. that's the compartmentalized thinking at work, yeah. right? That's anything that fits within the compartment of their preferred narrative, which is that Trump is, was elected by God, and is their savior. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that fits within it is believed, and anything that's fit, mm. is not within it is just rejected as a satanic lie. Such as the porn stars. Yeah. 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 Or, right. <laughs> well, and Mueller's going to have you know tons of evidence of both tax fraud and money laundering, mm-hmm. which is what I actually believe Trump has been engaged in. Uh, and that this is what Mueller is going to be presenting to the American public um, in hopefully shorter order. Yeah. <laughs> so would it, would it be right to think that the midterm elections in November are, I mean, obviously crucial in both respects, because if the Republicans <coughs> were to effectively hold the line, mm-hmm. they would presumably interpret that as the American public saying, we're not interested in this investigation, we're not interested in Russian meddling, wrap it all up and go away and leave Trump to leave him in peace. I mean, that would be the line, surely. Sure, well, that's what we've been seeing. I mean, frankly, as an American, I find it utterly outrageous that the Republican Party refuses to do anything about the very clear fact that this hostile foreign power has been openly interfering in our elections and has been meddling in our election processes, not just with the propagandization of people, but actually, um, you know, they've been hacking into uh, voting mechanisms. So uh, these, you know, and the the reality is, you know, and they simply didn't, uh, they not only, they just don't acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. So they're normally, uh, you know, normally we would have investigations of this and we would have commissions uh, focused on attempting to stop this from happening because the right to vote and the vote is the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. It's the very foundation of a democracy. And if you let somebody mess with that, you're letting them mess with your democracy. But this is the thing with authoritarians. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Um, righto, I think we've sure. we've got to question yeah. time. So well, on that cheery note, I'm Let's sure there's, uh, <laughs> there's a few few questions to come. I think there are a couple of people with microphones circulating out there. So if you've got a question, um, put your hand up. <coughs> okay, chap up the back there. Yeah. Um, the alt right is so, and we haven't really dived into the dynamics of the alt right here very much. But the alt right, just very quickly, is basically a sort of umbrella term for 
this new basically online uh, oriented movement or really online fueled movement uh, that has been moving into the real world um, in recent you know, the last year or two. Um, but it began really in 2010. And a lot of it, its original organizing was uh, came out of that Gamergate controversy. I don't know if you remember that, but it was this online uh, controversy that was supposed to be about uh, ethics in video. <laughs> ethics in, in video gaming. Down, uh, and a lot of the... A lot of what was the uh, the organize, early organizing of the alt-right came out of the uh, computer gaming world uh, These because these guys, what it was, was a lot of guys in the video game world were afraid that feminists were uh, trying to destroy their uh, preference for single shooter games. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, they would go on to these message boards like 4chan and 8chan and bitch and complain about women and feminists uh, wanting to ruin their fun and change their world. And, and it grew into this belief that, you know, they, as part of this larger plot to destroy uh, white Western civilization. Um, and this gave them an entry. This was where the white nationalists who also hung out on these boards would come in and say, well, you know, there's a reason for it because this is part of what we call cultural Marxism. Many of you may have heard that term. If you hear the term cultural Marxism, you should know that it was basically, uh, it was a, it's a hoax. It was a conspiracy theory, basically kind of an update of the old uh, uh, anti-Semitic protocols of seven elders of Zion conspiracy theory that holds that there's a secret cabal of Jews that are trying to destroy Western civilization. Um, only now it's the Frankfurt School, which is what cultural Marxism is all about. Anyway, that gave them the opening, uh, these white nationalists, the opening for recruiting these young men and this has been, uh, and so, you know, and it's grown into this, one of the things that's unique about the alt-right that uh, is, is certainly new about them is that they uh, have a really powerful misogynist element. Uh, you may have heard of incels or involuntary celibates. This is sort of a subset of the alt-right. Uh, these are guys who hate women. And like the, the man who drove the van, into the crowd in Toronto was an incel, and he was trying to murder as many women as he could. Um, and this is, so at any rate, the, to get to the chase here, uh, the alt-right has, and of course, it, it's more than just these elements. It also is, uh, you know, neo-Nazi, classic neo-Nazi, uh, some of them are actually openly fascist uh, uh, ideologues who are recruiting within this movement. And they're using really, it's a very sophisticated thing because they're using uh, appeals to their core demographic. And their core demographic that they're shooting for is young white males between the ages of 15 and 30. And this is who they're attempting to recruit. 
Uh, and they're doing so pretty successfully because uh, they're able to use trolling culture. Uh, that's uh, very much part of something that young men do online. Uh, a lot of the appeal is with humor uh, and irony and the humor that they use is classically transgressive humor. Uh, let's be as nasty and racist as we can <laughs> type stuff, you know, like 15 year olds like to do. It, it, this is what appeals to these young men. And this is how they're able to recruit as many young men into this belief system as they can. Uh, I was just in Melbourne and uh, there was a march on Saturday for March for Men uh, out there. And uh, the crowd was, uh, and, and in Australia, the, uh, the guys who are recruited in this aren't nearly as radical as the people we're seeing in the States, but they were still, I went around the crowd and talked to people and they were still, um, you know, talking about cultural Marxism and, and uh, how feminists and women are ruining their world. So um, that's very much part of it. Hello. Uh, Hi there. I, I have, uh, I guess, two questions. Early in your talk, you were speaking about Trump as being a charismatic leader, allowing the alt-right to unify mm -hmm. around him. In recent weeks, Steve Bannon was speaking about possibly identifying a new Trump, given some of the threats Trump mm -hmm. has been under. So one question is, um, who might Steve Bannon be looking towards? And second question is, um, is Trump the puppet of someone? Or is he so smart? Um, because, for instance, his comment yesterday around Antifa, <coughs> to me, is a direct message to his alt-right constituency. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that he's now embarked on a strategy to just ignore the rest except for his core base and that he is embarking to actually enrage them towards violence. Well, I, I don't think he's actually that smart. I think he's actually following the lead of many other people who are out there spreading that message already and have been spreading it for some time. And he's just listening to them and more or less regurgitating it. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think he actually, I don't think he actually understands what he's saying in many ways, uh, but he knows as I mentioned, he knows that this is part of his white uh, working class base that I referenced earlier. And he does see himself as a culture warrior, um, uh, waging war on their behalf. So yeah, he's, he's actually been, who he's listening to there is uh, Tucker Carlson and, and um, the people at Fox News in many regards, as well as Alex Jones. I know, we know that he listens to Alex Jones, and this is a constant message that Alex Jones repeats. Um, and what was, I'm sorry, what was the first question? If Steve Bannion's Oh the yeah, hunt. I don't know, <laughs> I, I, that I don't know. Uh, you know, he's certainly, we certainly are seeing the rise of authoritarianism. I do think he is Putin's puppet in many ways. Uh, and Putin has been financing these white identitarian movements throughout Europe. And we know that he's actually got ties to a number of the folks in the American alt-right as well. Um, so yeah, a lot of this is being funded by uh, Russian oligarchs and for the same reason, because 
Putin is fundamentally a, is he's a classic authoritarian. Uh, Russia, Russia is right now an authoritarian state. And this is what they're spreading throughout Europe. Uh, they want to, and not just Europe. I mean, look at the Philippines, uh, look at China, look at Myanmar. There's authoritarianism on the rise all around the world. And a lot of this is uh, part of this sort of so-called populist trend, but it's actually right-wing populism. That is, and one of the aspects of right-wing populism is that it's basically a way of uh, getting white working-class people to, uh, or working-class people to act on behalf of uh, the wealthy, so. So if you can liken uh, what you're talking about to a disease in society, which is probably a good analogy, how do you inoculate a society against this? Well, it is viral. It goes viral in a lot of ways. Um, I, you know, the, it's really hard. Uh, I don't see, actually, I don't see a lot of uh, likelihood of mass movement being very effective on this. I mean, on mass level, all we can do is organize votes and get people out to vote and stand up and defend democracy. Uh, but a lot of this happens on the personal level. I mean, there are, just like the young man whose trial I'll be covering this fall, a lot of this is happening within our families. It's happening to our friends. Uh, nearly everyone in the United States knows someone who has been red-pilled and has gone down these conspiracy theory rabbit holes. I mean, it's extremely common in the States. Uh, I don't know how common it is here. I hope not. But uh, you're probably, some of you are experiencing it. Um, and, you know, and honestly, facts and logic and reason have almost no effect, at least no immediate effect when you try to argue these things. Because these people work on, authoritarians work really on more of a gut level. They buy into a gut level narrative and this is what they subscribe to. And um, ultimately, I, I think that a lot of this has to, I mean, these, the, this movement is profoundly, uh, it's almost sociopathic and in the essence of sociopathic behavior is a lack of empathy. And the only thing I can say is the best thing we can do is to encourage and revive empathy, human empathy, human decency, human kindness as actual values in our society because they've been seriously degraded. They're certainly degraded on the internet, which is really prone to very easy dehumanization of other people. Um, because you know, you're not interacting with other people, you're interacting with bits on a computer screen. And, uh, you know, it's a simulacrum of, of human interaction and it's not real. And, you know, so I, I think the more we can get off our computer screens and have human to human interaction with other people, the healthier we will be. But we also really need to start finding and valuing and revering empathy and decency. Got time for probably two more questions, depending on how difficult they are. Yeah. We're running on a very tight schedule, so <laughs> we'll need to be out of here in a few minutes. Right. I wanted to ask a question about um, 
what the leaders of the Republican Party are thinking, from your opinion, people like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, and do they think they can control the forces that Trump is unleashing and Trump himself, or are they just sort of keeping their heads down and hoping that somebody more controllable will come in? What do you think their point of view is? Well, uh, they're more than happy to have uh, Trump in office because he's changing the court system. He's packing the courts with the people that the evangelicals and the far right have wanted to see. And that's probably embodied in the current Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who, if he becomes, if he's appointed to the Supreme Court, I'm quite certain that Roe v. Wade, the uh, ruling that uh, gave us abortion rights, will be overturned, um, as well as many, many other things. And uh, not only that, Kavanaugh has been very explicit that uh, he considers uh, the presidency to be like a king, uh, the president to be like a king and above the law. And so uh, I think it'll just open the gates for Trump's authoritarian tendencies. Um, so, uh, but the, the, and truth is, yeah, the Republican Party uh, is, uh, has been for some time, has been actually relatively spineless about this because they've been ginning this up themselves. People need to understand that this isn't just an overnight thing. It didn't just happen uh, beginning in 2015. This has been building for a very long time and it's part of the culture of the Republican Party. They've been encouraging, openly encouraging this kind of behavior for more than a decade. And uh, so ultimately they're very happy to see it. I mean, one of the real problems we have is we have Fox News, uh, which has been ginning a lot of this hatred up, a lot of this sort of uh, dysfunction. Uh, it's basically a channel that uh, coaches half of the country to viscerally hate the other half of the country. And when you have that going on, uh, I think society eventually becomes untenable because they certainly have won millions and millions of converts over to their beliefs. We're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. We could okay. go on uh, a lot longer, I'm sure. Uh, thank you very much for coming along, folks. And thank you. as I say, David will be signing his book uh, out in the front there. So thank you, David. And thank uh, you. enjoy the rest of your show. <laughs>